Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, January the 26th, 2021. This is episode 2812 of the Survival Podcast. It will be a topic roundtable. Probably be a little shorter than your typical episode. I'm going to kind of rapid fire through a bunch of subjects for you today. I'm sorry I had to leave you with a... Uh, um, a rewind episode yesterday, but I heard from several of you that said exactly what I said about it was true, that if I had done that show yesterday, originally, it probably would have been any different. It was spot on for the situation we find ourselves in, in the winter of 2021, even though it came from 2014, which is kind of ironic, and it, it also kind of shows those people that are like, you know, your show used to be different, man, you've changed. No, I haven't. No, I haven't. If I can put on an episode from 2014... And it sounds like, hey, you know, he could have recorded that today. I probably haven't changed. Maybe in those instances the individual has changed and is upset that the show has not changed along with him. We are, uh, well, we're, we're still the same, like the old song goes. Anyway, um, here's what we're going to talk about today. I've got a great quote to lead off for you from George S. Clausen. Who the hell's that? He's a guy that wrote many, many, many years ago, almost 100 years ago now, The Richest Man in Babylon. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Greater Reset, which kicked off last night. You, uh, me, myself, and I, yours truly, will be presenting on Wednesday. That's why I did a rewind yesterday, to work on uh, that presentation. I've got it far enough along that I'm comfortable doing a full episode for you guys today. We're going to talk about something called a Marmorkebs or Marmokrebs crayfish. You can call it marble crayfish. It might make you a little easier for you to say. Marma Krebs is a German word, so I am probably saying it wrong. But I'll tell you why you should care and what I'm going to be doing with them. How much research really goes into a typical T-Spaz item? Uh, this is the one out of the day today that's actually from a question uh, from an audience member. This is mostly just stuff I want to talk about or things I've seen on, pro, uh, on social media or have just popped up a bunch of times. Um, but somebody asked me, like, you say you do a lot, like, what kind of research do you actually do? How do you pick a T-SPAS item? And while this might be a bit promotional for T-SPAS, I think it's important for you guys to know what goes on when I decide, hey, I'm going to put this item on T-SPAS. Um, it's probably more than most people would think. It may be a little less than others might think as well. Uh, next, uh, someone on MeWe mentioned something about why we need to remain on the path to peaceful insurrection. And maybe saying some things about that. So I'll do that today. Proton mail. Proton mail. Proton mail. Everybody should use proton mail. Proton mail is great, but what's the other shoe to drop? I'll tell you when we get to it. And why I don't care that telegram groups are not encrypted. This one you should really be able to feel figure out for yourself. Uh, next up, why social media users should be a swarm, and what I mean by that. Next up, um, there there is a window closing right now, and it's not one of your typical windows that we think of with you know the Federal Reserve is going to clamp down on or the government is about to. No, no, it's a it's a it's a climate window. 
It affects everybody, at least in our hemisphere, equally. Just maybe the time shifts a little bit, depending on how far north or south you are in our great country here in the United States, and for anybody else in our hemisphere all around the world, same deal. And it's the time to get going with starting your plants for your spring and summer gardens. If you miss this window, what ends up happening is you end up paying lots of money to the people that like Home Depot, Lowe's, or more uh, more in keeping with reality if you want to try to do the right thing, your local nurseries, if they have the things that you're looking for. And there's nothing wrong with buying plants, but what sucks is buying plants because you have to, not because you want to. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, light a little frame under your butt. And on that note, I'm going to tell you about the easiest cold frame you'll ever make and how it takes longer for me to explain it than if once you have the stuff for you to do it. You literally don't even need a screwdriver or a hammer to build a cold frame the way that I'm going to tell you, depending on what you have. You may have to construct something a little bit, but it won't be difficult. All of that more. In just a bit, let's lead off now with that quote that I promised you from George S. Clausen, author of The Richest Man in Babylon, which, by the way, if you've never read it, you should. And the entire thing is available in audio for free on YouTube. I should probably grab that and move it over to my Odyssey channel for you guys. And I, I'll probably do that maybe next week. I, I really don't have time to do that today. Anyway... Um, in The Richest Man in Babylon, one of the lines that most stuck with me, because it, it was already one of my laws of life, and in in maturing, I actually I altered my law a little bit, which originally came from my father. Clausen stated it this way, Seek advice from those who are competent through their own experience and success to give it. And it, it helped me modify mine, because what my dad used to tell me was never take advice from anybody who's not doing better than you are. And I, I realized over the years that was decent advice, but it was also somewhat arrogant, and it was ignoring relativism. So let's look at some fellow podcasters I have. Let's look at some of my, two of my best friends in the world, close personal friends of me and Dorothy, Doc Bones and Nurse Amy. Are they more successful at podcasting than me? How do you quantify that? Do I have more listeners? Sure. Do they spend less time working on theirs and therefore have more time freedom than me? Yep. So who's more successful? Here's what I know about Doc and Amy. They're good at what they do. So if they give me advice about podcasting, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to implement it, but I'm going to consider it. Conversely, let's say that someone who's never done a podcast, never has spoken publicly, never's produced a video or audio of any kind whatsoever, starts telling me exactly what I need to be doing with my podcast. They can go screw. Because they have not proven themselves through experience and success that they're qualified to give me advice. Now, you also have to check that arrogance a little bit. So if somebody says to me, hey, Jack, you know what? We're coming up on fishing season. Maybe you should do a show on fishing. Okay, that's different. You're not telling me how to run my business. You're making a suggestion for content you'd like to. Of course I'm going to listen to that. So you always have to put some temperance in there. But it amazes, two things amaze me. The need that some people have to not just offer, but to shove advice at you at things they've never done while you're doing it successfully, telling you how you're doing it wrong. That amazes me. What amazes me more is how many people take the advice. And this is the dangerous part. I don't care that people do it. I just, no, whatever. A lot of times I don't even respond 
just whatever, right? Um, a lot of times I will look the person up. Like, does this person have any track record of doing the shit they say they're doing? Because, yeah, this seems to maybe make sense. And But if you're like, okay, you have nothing to show for your life, then no, I'm not going to take your advice. Even if it's good advice, I'm going to have to find it from another source. It's the fact that people don't do that. That's the dangerous part. So when people get into Bitcoin because their uncle who found out what it was three days ago said to get into Bitcoin, that's when you get hurt. That's when you get hurt. This is how this, this plays out so often. A person will come up with something they want to do. And then they will select a person who doesn't know anything about it but is well-respected by peers, family, whatever, and go try to sell them on it to win their endorsement. And if they get it, they know like the rest of the family or the clan or whatever will kind of call on board and support their idea because you know Uncle Bill says it's a good idea. And Uncle Bill's well thought of. He has money. He's an aerospace engineer or something like that. But he's giving advice now on it's a good time to buy silver. He doesn't own any silver, never bought any silver, knows nothing about silver other than, well, sometimes they use it in certain solders for electronics in his aerospace world. That's about all he knows about it. That's not a guy to get advice from about silver. And that advice can be unsolicited or solicited. It is just as dangerous if you follow it. The first thing I want to know, when anybody, under any circumstances, says, this is what you should be doing, what is your track record in this field? What have you done relative to this that shows me that I should trust your advice. And most of the time, the answer is nothing. You see this, like YouTube is a great place to watch this. The person that shows up on your video, unsolicited that you don't know, not a long-term follower, and tells you why you're a dumbass, and why you're doing it wrong, and why you should be doing it the way they say you should be doing it, 99 times out of 100 at least, when you click on their name to go look at their channel to see what they're doing, it says what? This channel has no content. This channel has no content. So you're out telling everybody else they're a dumbass and they don't know what they're doing and you need to be telling them how to do it so that they can correct their stupidity and you've shown nothing to the world that you have. And they might have a great track record that you just don't have on display. But I don't see that. To me, now you're a random-ass clown voice on the Internet. That's easy to do. It's harder to do when it's your uncle or your buddy or your friend. You need to treat them with the same distancing if they've not proven competent in the thing that they're doing. The number one way I hear the story that I lost a bunch of money on a deal is, well, this guy, my friend, my buddy, my uncle, my stepdad, whatever, came up with this great idea. And it didn't work out so well. Those people seldom are doing this nefariously. Some people do. They're scam artists. It'll even scam their own blood. Those people are a special level of scum. Most people believe their own bullshit. It's very dangerous. So one more time, seek advice from those who are competent through their own experience and success to give it. Not only does that mean only take that advice, but it also says, what's the first word? Seek. When you're trying to learn something, seek out a person who has the experience and track record behind it and ask for advice. You will find, and, and Clausen gives this advice elsewhere as well within his work, that most of the time that advice is freely given for those who ask. All right, with that, let me just remind you real quick, this week is the week of the Greater Reset put, being put on by John Bush and Derek Bros. Uh, this is our response to the World Economic Forum's Great Reset. 
We are seeking to educate and inform people as to how community is a solution and knowledge is a solution to what the world economic form sees as our future, which is complete and total control, smart cities, tracking everything you do, controlling your commerce, controlling your relationships. And if you don't think that's the plan, then I invite you to go to the World Economic Forum's website, look up the Great Reset on their site. And by the way, while we're doing this this week, they're, in, they're doing theirs. They're doing giant teleconferences all over the world about how they're going to change the world and eliminate capitalism and make it so that you'll own nothing, but you'll never have been so happy. Right? How they're going to take control of everything and reset the entire world. Again, whether you want to be reset or not, they're going to do it. So this is not our claim that they're doing this. This is their claim that they're doing it. This is our response to it. If you missed last night, don't worry. It runs all week. Uh, we have another great lineup of speakers tonight. Then we have on Wednesday night this week, we're talking about permaculture, nature, things like that. And yours truly will be speaking about backyard meat and protein production. Uh, and I will be the final speaker of the evening. I, I feel very honored that they felt that it was worth putting me at the, at the end of the lineup. If you look at the rest of the lineups, they seem to have taken the people that are kind of the biggest name of the evening and, and put them at the end. I don't know if I actually rate that uh, for Wednesday evening, but I appreciate the confidence shown in me with that. Uh, and I will try to do a great job for you guys. Again, that's why I took off yesterday. But if you want to know more, just go to thegreaterreset.org. They did have some struggles with um, streaming last night from the main website, but they were on various alternative streams, uh, including YouTube, which I haven't been shut down yet. We'll see if they get all the way through it without that happening. Um, but if you want to make sure that you're in touch with them and you know Uh, about alternative streams, if there's technical problems or something like that, get on their Telegram channel. That's how they used that very effectively last night. I tried to pitch in sharing what I had about it for people as well. But uh, you really want to be part of this. And if you can't be there every night, you can't see every session, it is all going to be published, recorded on uh, various channels and, and things like that as well. Next up, I want to tell you about the Mar More Krebs crayfish. And from this point forward, I shall call it the Marble Crayfish. And what this little critter is and why you should care and what role it may soon play in the Spirico Ranch world. So the, the, the marble crayfish was first discovered in Germany. But it appears to be a variant, a mutant, whatever you want to call it, of a species of crawfish from the United States. And every once in a while, like we learned in the, the fabulous world of X-Men, evolution makes a leap. And evolution made a leap with one of these little critters to where it began to lay eggs that were fertile and make new crayfish all by itself. No male required. The marble crayfish has self-identified as a female and has eliminated the need for the male in their species or subspecies or mutant variety or whatever you want to call it. A really strange thing that does happen in the world of aquatic creatures more often than you might think. What that means is you can take one of these things, put it in a cage, give it proper care, love, and feeding, and sooner or later it will make babies. And then all the babies will be clones. It, they have to be clones. Why? There's no other DNA provided. There's no daddy. There's no baby daddy. There are literally a whole bunch of babies, no baby daddies. And crawfish... When they have one litter, make a lot of babies. It takes them somewhere between five and seven months to mature to the point where they can make, you guessed it, more babies. 
So, you start with a few. They are kind of expensive. You start with a few. You put the proper systems in. And next thing you know, you have a literal ass load of crawfish. Now, the negative. Well, not a lot. They are, like most crawfish, able to survive in water that many fin fish would die in. They don't have a, they're not real particular about that. Um, so there, there's a lot of going for them. But I guess the, the negative from a standpoint, if someone wants to raise something to eat, they do not get anywhere near as large as, you know, your, your Louisiana crawfish, etc. They certainly don't get big like, um, like Australian yabbies or something like that. They're, you know, they're, when they're fully mature, they're the size crawfish that you, if you were trapping crayfish, uh, for cooking at home, and you were cleaning out your trap, you'd be like, I could, yeah, probably let it go. That's kind of like, kind of right at that kind of in between where if you had the choice, you'd have a bigger one, but yeah, you could take it home and eat it. So they're edible. And that is one use they may serve here once we build the population up high enough. But they serve a totally different purpose for me. As you guys know, I have worked long and hard to develop as many systems as I can in my own backyard with my livestock where my livestock are fed on production from the property so I do not rely on third-party services or having to buy and bring in feed. I'm nowhere near there yet where I'm 100% self-sufficient, and I don't know that I ever will be, nor is that my goal. But everything I can do to reduce my off-site input, the better. So what would one do with a small crawfish? Well, if one had many of them, thousands of them, tens of thousands of them, like I do the little bitty shrimps now that I, I grow the same way, one might occasionally get a whole bunch of them and throw them into one's ponds that are full of big giant things like channel catfish and bullheads, bass, and larger species of sunfish. And the small crayfish would be a perfect size to be consumed. And some of those crayfish would find little places to hide and make babies that would then be eaten by the smaller crawfish, the, the smaller panfish, But yet if there was a reserve place where none of them got eaten, you would always have this ongoing continuous production of something that is, yes, something maybe we eat a meal or two of a year or something like that for our own personal consumption. Because even though they're little, they taste delicious. My understanding is they are being used for human food production in, of all places, Madagascar. That's the only place I can find this. Of course, the eco-weenies have said, Oh my God, it's a dangerous invasive species. It's a crawfish. Everything eats it. It's not like freaking, you know, kudzu, where if it if it ends up, you know, getting out into the wild, you know, the only thing that eats it is really goats and cattle, and we don't actually have them in the right place to eat it. If you have a water system and crawfish start reproducing in it, they're going to get eaten. It's a species that was originally native to the United States. It can reproduce maybe at higher levels. And of all the hysteria and screaming, oh, my God, and, and yes, some states have made it illegal. I believe Michigan or Minnesota, one of those idiotic states, have made it illegal because it's dangerous. Um, there has been no instances of it in the wild. If you look it up online, you will find that it's taking over Europe. And No, it's not. There's literally no instances of it disrupting native habitats at all because if anything it would be a food source so i'm not suggesting you go like raise a couple thousand of these and catapult eat them into your local uh, aquatics uh off you know off of your property and what have you and i i don't even know that i if i had an in-ground pond you know a natural pond that i would i would put them in there 
But when you're running tank-based systems like I am, I'm not worried about it. And they are not illegal in the state of Texas, so I won't be violating the law, even though I'd be more than willing to for this uh, purpose of research here. Uh, I have used certain uh, things that are not supposed to be used, and I have found some of them to be very, very useful, and I found some of them to be problematic. And I've always used them so that if they turn out to be problematic, I can eliminate them, such as water lettuce. Water lettuce has been eliminated from my property. Um, because I use tank-based systems and because it dies in our winters, it wasn't hard to do. So always use caution when you're dealing with things like this. You don't want to be the person that releases the next kudzu on the United States. Kudzu is a problem. I, I think there's great solutions to it, but nobody wants to do it. Uh, I, I think that you know the so-called problem of, of plants like water hyacinth, we have massive solutions for that that we just seem to not be interested in implementing. But I'll be implementing solutions with that as well. You want to know more about all this, you guessed it, tune into my presentation on Wednesday evening at the Greater Reset. Um, next, I want to talk a little bit about how much research actually goes into a T-SPAS item and, and, and why that's the case. It's not just to do a good job for you. It's not just because of that. It's not just so that I will do well with that business unit. That's part of it, but it's not, it's not actually how it started. It, it all really comes from an honest-to-God belief that I've had for far longer um, than I've been involved with podcasting. I can give you a quick story about it that will explain kind of the genesis of this thinking in my life and, and where it came from. I became convinced as a very young man, as I was studying successful people, that one of the hallmarks of successful people, people that you should seek the advice of because they've proven it through competence and experience, was that they won with money frequently. And it wasn't just on big trades and stock markets and investments or earning a big paycheck. It was also with little things that with little things every day over and over again making smart decisions, five bucks here, 50 bucks there, 150 bucks there, in the total cost of something over its lifetime. And by doing those little bits over time, that annually it was thousands of dollars, and that thousands of dollars that was then available to invest in other areas of life compounded over a lifetime and increased wealth. And as I discovered this, I also decided that as a professional, and at the time I was in sales, that I would use this as a consulting technique to win more business but also create loyal clients. And that it was my job to help my customers, my clients, not only choose my company, because that was my job, but to do so in such a way that they were better off for it, that we could take the same philosophy and use it to sell because it was a valid feature. It was a valid benefit. Here's an example of how that worked out one time. I had a customer that wanted voice and data drops put in for several hundred uh, office users, and they were really pushing the edge of their budget. And they had been con convinced by a manufacturer's representative for Jackson Cable they needed three data jacks, three data jacks, and one voice jack per workstation because that's what the specification was. Now, who wrote the specification? The cable and jack people. That's who write all the specifications in this, this world and in many worlds are written by the manufacturers. They have these committees and they're not bad, they're just self serving. So if they had the budget, they were happy to do this and they were thinking about future proofing and all. And like, you guys lease an office. 
You know, well, they have a 50-year guarantee. You're not going to be here in 50 years. Let's let's be honest about that. And and what the cable you're putting in today, the reason they're guaranteeing it for 50 years, you won't use it for 10. So let's look at this. So what we determined, since my company was going to do the installation, is we could do one voice and one data to each workstation, and that would save them, at the time, we were doing drops for about $150 a, a, a drop. So that was 300 bucks per workstation. And that we could buy a little fast Ethernet switch for each workstation for about 100 bucks. This was the days of fast Ethernet, 100 meg. Well, if they're on that, then they don't have a full pipeline for all three machines. Are they going to need it? And it turned out no one was. The majority of people, their workstations would have a phone and a single computer. There was a significant portion that might come in and have a laptop, and they kind of came in and out with, and they would plug that in. And uh, But most people didn't even really need more than one data drop. So what we ended up doing was, in the budget, we were able to provide one of these switches for every workstation, whether they needed it or not. And the one of the engineers up the chain from this pushed back with, well, but what if one of the switches goes bad? And what I wanted to say is, well, stupid, what if one of the cables goes bad? You replace it, right? So all we did was we said, well, you know, we could still save a buttload of money. And you guys can buy 5% more switches than you need and put them on a shelf in your telecom closet. We even built into the specs of the telecom closet where all the wires went some space and a little cabinet to store them in, along with their little power adapters. And then the facilities guy had a key so he could get them out. A little inventory sheet. Everything was good to go. And they went with this because they realized that even if 10% of them failed and they had to use all of their backups, they'd still be ahead, and that they would never do it because most of the people would never even need the damn thing in the first place because they only needed one data drop. And I don't remember how much, but this saved them tens of thousands of dollars on this installation. It wasn't to spec, but all the stuff that was put in was actually to spec. It never mattered in the future that it wasn't to the exact spec that TIA, EIA says you're supposed to do. There's no authority there. It's not like if they left the space, they weren't going to sell it to somebody else who would even care anyway. There was no reason to do this other than somebody had told them they had to. Well, I went in and said, you don't have to do this. Here's how to put money back in your budget. And guess what? A year later, I won another job from them. This one was a half a million dollar job, and I didn't even have to compete for it. They asked for a bid. We talked about it. I wrote the, the, the bid up, gave them a proposal, and they signed off on it with no question. They did not need another bid. They didn't look talk to another competitor because I had trust. That wasn't just a sales technique. It was a great sales technique, but it wasn't just a sales technique. It was how I was living my life. That made it authentic. When it comes to T-SPAS, I do the same thing. My wife was asking me about this recently because I was, I was sitting on my laptop and I was pissed. <laughs> just being, going jack, right? Going full jack. And she's like, what's the matter? I'm like, you know the shoes that I wear every day that you keep telling me to buy a new set of? She's like, yeah. I'm like, I finally broke down to buy them. Timberland doesn't make them anymore with a really nasty word in between. And she's like, well, surely they have a replacement. And I'm like, you don't understand, 
right? So just for a pair of shoes that I've worn for three years and are still servicing me, but it is time. It is time for a new pair of them. Um, I put weeks of research into it for a pair of shoes for myself. And you, you'd ask why. Well, because I wore them for three years, and technically they still work. One more coat of snow steel, and they might stop leaking, and you know I could probably wear them for a while longer. But as my wife put it, you know you deserve to have a new pair of shoes. So now I had to go on another research spree to find the closest thing to these, that, and I eventually did. But every time, I'm telling you guys, every time I get an email from somebody, hey, Jack, uh, do you have a different recommendation for XYZ? Uh, I went to T-Spaz, I found your recommendation for this thing, and I went to look for it, and they don't make it anymore, it's not in stock anymore, it's been discontinued, whatever, or, you know, it's so low in stock that it's three times the price. My, my, my first thought is, son of a bitch, because now i got to do it again. Because I literally do that with Almost everything. There's certain things that it's like, hey, you know what? This is a zip tie. As long as it does what it's supposed to do, I'm not looking for a lifelong purchase here. right? Um, there are some things that are so simplistic in what they are, there's really not a way to make them wrong. There are times when cheap is actually smart because of the application. And in those instances, I'm not going to put a lot of research in. But do you think I put a lot of research into something like a $50 garden hose? Yes, because I'm concerned with buying a shitty hose and over 10 years having to buy five of them at $25 bucks versus buying one for 10 years at $50. I'm concerned about that because that's not smart. Because I'm not trying to spend the least money today. I'm trying to spend the least money over time because that's how you win with money. And I also decided when I was going to make this a business unit, recommending products, that I cannot ever recommend a product that somebody looks at a couple weeks or a couple months or even a year after they bought it and say, damn it, Jack, why did you recommend this piece of shit? This thing is garbage. And I don't think I've ever gotten one completely wrong. I think maybe there's times when I've found better options. But I don't think I've ever gotten one where I'm like, damn, I should have never touched this. This was stupid. Because I knew that if I recommended stuff, and you guys used it, and it was what I said it was, that every time you looked at it, you'd think, hey, Jack recommended that. Jack's awesome. If I need something else, I'm going to ask Jack. But if it was, I could do that ten times perfectly, and you bought all ten things, and you bought the 11th one, and it was a piece of shit. You'd think, well, he's a jerk. And not in a good way, right? He doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. He's a piece of shit. Because one major negative will erase 10 positives. So the other thing I, I, I committed, and I haven't really had to do this yet, but if I ever found a product that turned out to be a complete piece of shit, then I would come back and say, hey, I got this one wrong. And I would double my efforts on finding a replacement for it. I ain't had to do it yet. If I ever do, I will. But that's what goes into it, and that's why. And that's actually the lesson in that is applying that thinking to everything in your life. The poor person wants to know what it costs me today. The obscenely rich person doesn't give a shit. The person building wealth wants to know, what will this cost me across its lifetime? What will this cost me across my period of need? And the best thing you can find is something that you think, 
if my kids want this, when I'm dead, they'll be able to use it. And it's the antithesis of everything we do, and it's why it's so hard. I said this to my wife last night during one of the presentations at The Greater Reset. I said, you know, the proof that we don't keep trying to make things better is that we keep needing more of things over time. For instance, if we built cars to the best of our ability, it is reasonable that the average person would hand their car down to their kid, not when their kid hits 16 and it's kind of like you got a few years left in it, but when they die. There's no way we would make more Fords, more Chevys, more Dodges, more Toyotas, more Subarus every year if we were building them to the top quality that humans are capable of. We would need less of them every year, and that's the antithesis of our economy. Our economy in the whole world is built on eternal growth, right? Growth. As long as you have growth, we're good. That's how, that's how lowbrow the whole thing has become. So finding ways and paths through that are based on that value-to-price ratio is difficult because the system is designed to not make it a thing, to either sell the luxury or to sell the cheap. That middle road is the road for building wealth, and it's a difficult one to find sometimes. Uh, next up, I've seen a lot of mention about this on social media lately, but it's about the path of peaceful insurrection and Some people asking kind of a different question, like how long can we tolerate this shit before peaceful insurrection has to turn into violent insurrection? And my answer to that is as long as possible, it must stay peaceful. And we are nowhere near where it should be violent yet. Like I said recently on an episode, I think it was Friday's last week, we must follow the advice of Dr. Martin Luther King when he was running protests in that we must always be better than they are. We must walk better, speak better, look better, act better than they do all the time. Every time we have no room to ever fall below their standard. We have to raise the standard and always meet it. And in the place that we have to meet the standard isn't in being legal It's in being ethical, and we need to be clear what the difference between the two is. When a black woman, like Rosa Parks, because she wasn't the only one, she was just the one they used to make the case. It was a setup, on purpose, and good for them. It's a valid technique. But when a black woman, in the 60s, refused to sit on the back of the bus and sat in the front, it was illegal. It was not immoral. We have to cease equating legal with moral. Throwing a person in the cage for the possession of a plant is not moral. It's legal. You see how that works? It's that simple. I don't care what you think about drugs. Putting someone in a cage, kidnapping and imprisoning someone, which is what arrest and jail is, for the possession of a substance that they're not using to harm anybody else, specifically it's even worse when it's a naturally occurring plant, is an immoral act. Infinity. And I, this is not a case for making drugs legal. It's just a good example. There is no world that that is a moral action in, but it's a legal action. And there is no world in which you choosing to grow something, pick it up, eat it, smoke it, put it in your pocket, is an immoral action, unless it takes your life. Or simply screws your life up. There's, there's a morality. That was a personal moral decision. That's not a collective one. 
So we need to understand that when I say we must be better, it does not mean we must always follow the law. It means we must not use force and aggression unless force and aggression are used against us. And it means that our response to aggression must be at all times proportional. And I'll tell you what, the first person I ever heard really articulate that is probably not a person you would expect to hear it from. It's one of my old teachers, Valerie Asanoff, who's a former member of the KGB, who's a Russian martial arts instructor, one of the most deadly human beings I'm telling you I have ever met. This man's skill is so beyond anything I can even conceive of, it's hard to understand when you're, when you're, when you're training with him. But he was the first person I heard use the term over and over and over again in his training, sufficient force. Which means the force must be in excess of the opponents only to the point of incapacitation or breaking the attack and allowing for escape. Because winning is not always what's important. In fact, Val was the person that taught me that one of the reasons that the Russians were so dominant in the Olympics up and through the 80s was they, because Val was also a Russian Olympian. Uh, he was on the Russian judo team. And he taught me that they were not taught to win. That's right. Russian athletes were not conditioned to win. They were conditioned to survive. They were taught survival. You survive. You survive long enough. You stay in the game long enough, especially in combat sports like, like judo, boxing. You stick around long enough. And your opponent, you will wear them out and they will make a mistake. And when they make that mistake, that's when you capitalize on it. That's how you win. But the first goal, survive. And surviving leads to winning. This is the position we find ourselves in right now in resisting all of the things that the state wants to do. If you don't survive, you cannot continue to fight. They're the government. They're incompetent. They will make mistake after mistake after mistake. They will provide us with unlimited opportunities to make them look like assholes, to make them look stupid, and to exploit the loopholes that they leave open that are so wide you could drive a fleet of Mack trucks through them, horizontally linked side by side like a wall. If we survive, when you do stupid shit, which I agree was instigated and, and, and made to happen in some ways, but the people that did it still did it. And yes, most of them were Trump supporters, like the capital bullshit. I won't even call it a right because it's a stupid name for it. But like storming the Capitol building, that was stupid. That's a mistake. It makes it difficult to survive because now they have something that they can point to and say, see how dangerous these people are? And they won't stop. You're going to keep hearing this shit. There'll be laws passed next year that will be justified by that one moment of stupidity. It's very hard to point to a group of people peacefully growing ducks, chickens, and pigs, and cows and trading with each other, and say, those people are dangerous. They'll do it, but they'll look like stupid fucks for doing it. And that lets you survive, and that is their mistake, and then you win. First they ignore you, right? Then they mock you. Then they fight you. And then you win. But you only win if you survive. And you only survive 
by doing the most important thing when it comes to war. And never forget, this is war. This is a war on your freedom. This is a war on your way of life. This is a war on your ability to travel. This is a war on the fundamental rights that this nation was founded on. It's a direct war on it. So when you hear that, you think, well, then if it's a war, then you've got to listen to me. The most important advice I'll give you today, never fight the enemy's war. If the enemy excels at a method of warfare, you do not meet the enemy at their chosen time, in their chosen place, with their chosen method of battle. My God, one need only explore military history to understand this, and then one only need an IQ over about 95 to comprehend that it extends beyond military engagement. You do not meet the enemy where he is strong. You meet the enemy where he is weak. The enemy is weak with technology. Our side has every technology that they have and more. They cannot win a technology race with us because two guys in a garage can outperform them. We can make the next leap. We're ahead when it comes to cryptography, when it comes to cryptocurrencies, when it comes to distributed platforms. We're ahead in every way. You fight there. They cannot beat the interpersonal, interhuman, true relationship and the communities that come with it. That bond is impossible to win from the state level unless you put everybody in fear. And the answer to the fear is the community where you can trust me. You can rely on me. I will be here for you. You will be here for me. And then the fear is gone. Even in the countryside of Russia, during Stalin that was the case. And by God, we're not there yet, and it is this path that keeps us from going there. We have so many advantages if we make them fight our war. We have zero advantage if we want to use violence, because the state is violence. The state is violence. Without violence, the state has nothing. There is nothing they can do without violence. What can the state do? Seriously, think. Have you ever even thought about that? What is the state capable of if you take away violence? And understand what violence is. Violence is, we've sent you a ticket. If you don't pay it, men will come get you and take you away. That's violence. Just because it looks peaceful because the guy surrenders peacefully, it's still violence. When a guy with a gun comes up to you and says, you're coming with me whether you want to or not, And you know he'll use the gun if you say no. It's violence, even if it doesn't look like it. So tell me again what the state is capable of doing without violence. And the answer is nothing. Now, if you want to be nitpicky and say, well, that's really not violence, it's force, fine. But you're wrong. Because force cannot be applied without the potential for violence. Because without violence, you got nothing on me. We can make it uncomfortable for you. Yeah, but if you, if, you, if you don't have violence as a last resort, you got nothing. The state doesn't have dog shit without violence. So when something, some entity, some enemy excels at a thing, it is the last place you want to meet them. It doesn't mean you won't ever have to. The truth is, sadly, someday it might honestly be, it might honestly be American Revolution 2.0 or Global Revolution 2.0. Who the hell knows? 
But people that cheer that on are effing stupid sons of bitches. You have no idea. And I've, I've heard from people that are like military veterans. Some of you guys don't realize that we enjoy it and we're good at it. You're a moron. You're a dumb fuck. You're the last person that should think that way because you were trained by the state in violence. And you know that even though you think you're a badass, there's thousands of guys just like you still inside the machine, still brainwashed, that will use that same violence you were trained with against you. And they outnumber you and they have unlimited resources. And the only way that you would win a battle like this would be through pure guerrilla warfare. And that means a lot of innocent people having their lives destroyed and being killed and atrocities that would be committed by both sides. You think you're helping, but you're not if you're one of those people. I will always hold out the rifle as the last resort so that the state knows that it's there. But if you root for it, if you pray for it, if you want it, you are an effing idiot. There are trees outside right now converting CO2 into oxygen that you can breathe. And you are not worthy of the O2 they're putting out if you think that way. You are no patriot. No patriot. And you are no friend of humanity if you think that way. And you probably shouldn't even listen to me because I can't help you. You're in the wrong mental state for me to help you. Our battle must be peaceful infinity. Or we're fighting the enemy's war. And even if we don't lose, we still lose. We still lose. Next up, I want to talk to you real quick about Proton Mail. Because like Proton Mail, Proton Mail, Proton Mail is the best. It's encrypted. Yay! Okay. If you're using Proton Mail and your friend uses Proton Mail, And you send email from you to your friend, and you're both using ProtonMail. It's encrypted. It's really, really good. Got it? Okay. If friends on Gmail, and you email your friend with ProtonMail, your email's not encrypted. Your inbox is encrypted. Your deleted items folder is encrypted. Your sent box, all the stuff on your search. So it's still better. But everything you send to everybody anywhere in the world that's not also on ProtonMail, so you have E-to-E encryption, both in the transmission of the email and the receipt and storage on both sides, if you don't have that, it's not encrypted. So while the NSA can peer directly into your Gmail email box, and they can, and that's one reason you shouldn't use Gmail, right? Um, if you're emailing people on Gmail, Hotmail, uh, you know, Joe Blow's email, whatever, with ProtonMail, it's only half encrypted on your end, and that means... Everywhere it goes, everywhere it's forwarded, everywhere else it's stored, it's still there. It's still a great, if, if you ask me, what is the best cloud-based email service where I'm not running my own server that I can use to protect myself from the state and from others, um, rats of all varieties, state-based and private sector both, I would say ProtonMail. I just want you to understand that. Because I have people sometimes go, Jack, why don't you use ProtonMail? I never said I didn't. But yeah, your, your email is the survivalpodcast.com. It is. It's my public email. If I ever had a communication with anybody that I wanted to keep private completely 100%, then I would require some level of E2E communications, and ProtonMail or ProtonMail would be fine for that. But I don't run a ProtonMail account for the show because it would just be needlessly tedious And every email I got and responded to, with few exceptions, 
would be public as public as it could be anyway. Because my email on my side is pretty dramatically private unless you hack my actual computers because of the way I do things. And I don't want to give any more away than that. Okay, But just say that no one's going to break into the TSP server and get all my emails. I'll just leave it at that. It's not happening ever under any circumstances. What they could ever get at any moment would be extremely limited. All right. So next up, um, Telegram. I, I keep hearing people tell me, but Telegram's not encrypted when you're on a group. And it's only encrypted between individuals if you ask for it to be encrypted. Okay, so the feature's there. So if you're going Telegram to Telegram, you want something to be private, which might be all the time, honestly. You should send it as an encrypted message. Not hard to do. I don't care if groups are encrypted because it's group. So unless you have a group that you put together of trusted individuals, in which case you should probably be using something else, you have no idea who's in a group. Like when I run my survival podcast telegram group, I would never put anything out into that group that I would consider sensitive. Something for members only or people in it only, something like exclusive that's kind of juicy that kind of incentivizes you, sure. But if I had anything going on that I didn't want the state to know about, I certainly wouldn't put it out on the show, nor would I put it out in the group. So it's just not an issue to me. It's exactly like ProtonMail. ProtonMail is great to protect your inbox and all that stuff, the part you're storing. But the other end of it, you, you don't have control over what the other party does. So unless you're going Proton to Proton and trust the other party, just consider it public. That's how all these messaging services work. And I've had people tell me, do you know that, 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 that Apple says that their messaging service is EDE encrypted? Yeah, it doesn't mean they can't break it because they wrote it. And it doesn't mean that they don't share your information with the government because they say they do. So there you go. You decide what you want on that. ProtonMail is a fine product. Just don't think when you email your buddy with a Gmail account that your email is encrypted because it's not. It's only encrypted where you store the copies in your box. Now, if your buddy's on Proton, it's EDE. All right, which means end to end. Uh, next up, I want to just say a little bit about social media. I've talked about this before, but there's some stupidity going on right now. More FUD. Uh, my Miyagi Mornings episode today was on the FUD around Tether and how Tether is supposedly going to destroy Bitcoin. I won't go down that. If you want to hear it, check out the Miyagi Mornings episode today. Um, but the other thing I've been getting from people is MeWe's gone big tech corporate, and they're purging all the... Uh, The stop the steal groups off of MeWe. They're, they're soliciting people. So I'm like, well, what's the, pr the proof of this was some article. There was two people that were supposedly MeWe employees that you have no verification of that said, let us know about any of these, these uh, groups. We're getting rid of them. So that's not proof of anything. But being the perennial researcher, thought, you know what? MeWe does use Twitter to talk about MeWe. And it's easier to talk to MeWe on Twitter than it is on MeWe, which is something they really should fix. So I did a quick tweet out to MeWe corporate and said, hey, they say this is going on. Are you doing it? Yes or no? They came back and said, no. People are free to talk about anything in politics they want. We do not allow discussions about illegal activity, like, like organizing for illegal activity, or planning for violence. Doesn't matter what the subject is, we don't allow those two things, and we enforce that uniformly across all our users and groups. But if they want to, they said there's plenty of, of groups on there right now doing it, you want to talk about it, go nuts. And people said, well, that's just a canned response from, from, from me, we corporate. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. You, and these are people defending their decision to exclusively use like Facebook. Like, just go be with Zuckercock. 
and be his bitch and let him pimp out your data and spy on you and report you to the government. Just go do that and don't make fake excuses anymore, right? That's how I feel. It's not that I, 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 I don't respect your decision. It's that I don't respect your justification for your decision. Your true decision is, I like this. Even though I'm being abused by it, it's where all my friends are. And I don't want to give it up. Okay, I respect that. Well, these people might be doing something bad too. That's bullshit. Especially when you have the company stating, we don't do that, go nuts. However, what I get from people then is, but what we do, what we do if Miwi actually does that, then we leave. Then we leave. Then we leave and we go somewhere else. Social media is valuable from a standpoint of many things, sharing information, building community, all of that. That's our end of it. But the companies that provide platforms for it, they don't do it because they like you. They do it because you represent value in some shape or form to them. Okay, So we have value. Translation, we're the money. And what did Peter Schiff teach us about money long ago, friends? Money goes where? Where it's treated well. Now, the reason that happens in the world is the people that control large sums of money don't get it by being stupid. I know a lot of people like to believe that they do, but no one amasses massive wealth through true stupidity. Even if the person's stupid, their handlers, their managers, etc., the people actually managing the money are smart. I didn't say they were good. You can be smart and evil. Comic books taught you that, right? Okay, so they're smart. So when money's treated poorly, smart people take their money and go elsewhere with it. You should be smarter than dollars. So if MeWe actually does do these types of things, there's another platform to go to. But they shut down Parler, and we went to another platform. And that's how we should be. Our groups and our communities should be strong enough that when there's a problem, we say, we're migrating. Birds do it. Why can't you? It's actually harder for a bird to fly from Florida to Pennsylvania than it is for you to go from parlor to float. Or from Facebook to Discord or MeWe or whatever. But Discord censors... I didn't... See, this is the thing. Some of y'all would be like, well, they're not free speech. Well, how do you mean that? Well, this guy put up a bunch of child porn and they took it down. So they're not fully free speech. Do you think child porn should be out there? No, but they're not... Okay, see, I can't help you. All you can ask for from any company that runs any type of communication medium, any kind of platform, is the following. Clearly state your rules, then enforce your rules the same for everyone. And I think most of us who are reasonable people and not looking for excuses or something to just bitch about agree with that. If Facebook had the same rules for everyone on the freedom of speech side we wouldn't be upset. The reason the right is migrating to these other platforms is they're being singled out and treated differently than the left. And if you don't believe that, you're, you're, you have your head so far up your ass that you can't breathe, let alone think, right? So it doesn't matter. But that's why. But that's not the biggest reason for me not to be on Facebook anymore. The free speech thing, I mean, I'll just say whatever I want to say anyway, and if they ban me, they ban me. I don't mind that, right? I'm okay with that. What really did it for me long term was thinking about privacy. 
The fact that those bastards take your data and give it willingly to governments, including foreign governments, and they don't even really deny that they do it, and that they sell your data and make your data available to corporate interests, that is literally techno-fascism. And it was like, you know what? I can deny them the ability to do that. Like the data that's already there, there's no sense in deleting it. It's already been shared. Fine. I'll leave the thing up, and once in a while I'll do a drive-by and say, hey, I'm over here. Did you know this is happening to you? And that's it. And maybe sooner or later they'll ban me and block me or delete my account or whatever, but screw it. That's what I decided to do. I want privacy. I want to be respected. And right now, one of the platforms that do that is MeWe. And when people are like, what are you going to do if I will leave? It's not hard. It's only hard if you make it hard. Some people act like you're, 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 it's 1976. And you're trying to make a break and get over the Berlin Wall before the machine guns get you. It's literally filling out a form, maybe clicking a confirm email, and telling people, hey, I'm over here. And we need to build our communities with such strength on social media. We need to build them with the same strength we build them in the real world. So maybe not all the community leaves, but the majority of the community leaves. And always remember... Someone has to go first, and sometimes that person would be you. And if you want a leader, leaders always go first. You can only lead from the front. If you're driving, this is a lesson beyond social media and even any of this, but though, if you're driving people, you're not leading them. You can't drive people from behind through force, through aggression, through fear, and lead them. Your people can fear you to a degree, and you can still be a leader. But they have to love you more than they fear you so that where you go, they will follow. All right. Moving on from the social media swarm. Just want to remind you guys, time is ticking. Tick-tock, 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 tick-tock. Not the way I usually talk about that. But with you getting your plant started. I'll just put it to you this way. My grandfather lived in central Pennsylvania, and he always started his tomatoes and peppers right around Valentine's Day. Uh, it's about three weeks. A little less. Get on it. Look up your last frost date, count backwards, and figure out when you need to be putting your plants. You want your plants ready to go out about 7 to 14 days after your last average frost date. And if things are going well and they're kind of ahead of the game, you can put them out a little early with some protection if you feel good about it. I often do. I often start more than I need, and that way I can put them out a little early. And if I get through it without a, a hit of a freeze then they're off to the races. If not, I still have my reserves in backup, and any reserves in backup I can't find a place for after the danger is completely gone, I sell or give away. You should do the same thing. And one of the best ways to start plants is indoors uh, with grow racks, with hydroponics, all the stuff I've talked about in the past. But another great way, and a great way to kind of grow your plants out a little more but give them some protection is using something called a cold frame. A cold frame. And there's all kinds of cool cold frames you'll see online. People build boxes and put a window and a door. And people dig holes in the ground, which is even better and what have you. And, and they put a window over it with a pulley and stuff like that. So I'm going to give you the simplest cold frame you'll ever build. And when you're done using it for the year, you have mulch or compost. Okay? Straw bales. 
straw bales and some sort of transparent cover and an ability to prop it up so it doesn't get too hot during the day. That's all there is to it. Just lay one layer of straw bales on the ground so that it forms a box the size that you want to put your stuff in. And remember, unless you're going to fill it up so you need the space, smaller is better. It's easier to maintain the temperature. Okay? Then any type, like an old door, an old window, a couple old windows, just lay it on the top. And then you need a really sophisticated way to kind of prop those up during the day so it doesn't get too hot in there. So a board, a rock, a bucket, you see what I mean? Or if it's just something you're laying on there, you might even just take it off and just lay it on the back, kind of like ramp style on the back for the daytime and then just put it back on an hour before dark. That's it. Did you want it to be more complicated? It's not. You could even take something like some PVC. You could build yourself a frame the size of the door you need, get some greenhouse plastic or just cheap plastic. It only has to make one season. Cover it with that, lay that on, and weight it down with something so it doesn't blow off. And you could even do something like if you wanted to make it a little bit warmer in there, you, if you have some a little bit of dug down so you have some space, go ahead and put a layer of compost on the floor And the residual heat from the compost will help keep it warm. Or, you know, just be careful you don't set the hay bales on fire. Uh, but you could do something like a light bulb in there to help keep it warm. You could even take a light bulb, put it in there with a thing called a thermocube. Again, make sure the light bulb's not coming into contact with straw. Okay, you got to figure, don't use some big-ass heat light or something like that. Just standard light bulb. Thermocube will turn on at 35 degrees and off at 45 degrees. Very, very simple, low-tech solution. And I didn't even think about it when I was putting the notes together, but I will put for you today a link in the show notes to the Thermacube. It just looks like a little um, plug adapter, like where you put it into one plug and you get two out. But it has an internal switch that just just on and off. It goes on at 35 and off at 45. That way it's never going to get too hot. Easiest way I know to make a cold frame. And that way you can start moving your plants outdoors, and growing them out a little bit more earlier. And when you're done with it, you can do a straw bale garden. You can use the uh, straw for mulch. You can mulch a path. There's compost out of it. You can let your birds tear it up and make compost for you. Do whatever you want. It's just straw. Cheap, and it's efficient, and you really haven't used the straw. You've used it temporarily until it gets its final use. All right. With that, oh, oh, I didn't even think of this. You know what you could do? You could... Uh, You could add some nitrogen of some form to your straw and wet it, and it'll produce its own heat. I didn't even think of that. I've never done that, but it would work. And you could even do that by just peeing on the straw. Yeah, I said pee on the straw. I'm not kidding. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our item of the day from T-SPAS. Today's item of the day is one that really fits the research pattern that I told you about in the segment on T-SPAS today. And it is the, the, the new electric kettle that I recommend, and it's made by a company called Miraco, I think is how you would say it, M-I-R-O-C-O, 1.7 liters. This means it's really big. It boils water really fast. But the exciting thing is you can set the temperature anywhere you want. From If you want it to boil, you just hit boil, and it'll go to 212 and turn itself off. But you can set it anywhere between 110 and 200 degrees. So you can dial in the perfect temperature for what you're making. To me, if you're making a green tea, you want around 175 to 185 degrees. You can do that, five-degree increments. Um, French press coffee, 
200 degrees. Try it. You'll see. It's better that way. Um, if you want to go all the way to boil, you can. If you want to warm up water to melt some honey in it, because that's your thing, 130 degrees. Um, if you wanted a cup of warm milk, you could throw milk in it. Just make sure you rinse it out pretty good after you do that, 110 degrees. You want to boil an egg, you don't want to bring out the sous vide, and you want to do a perfect soft-boiled egg, figure out your temperature that you want, and you set it at that temperature, it won't just reach that temperature. You hit hold, it'll hold it there. See? This is... I upgraded from the old kettle to the new one. You know what I've had people tell me, and this is why I know I'm doing this the right way? Man, I want to buy that new one, but the old Hamilton Beach one just won't die. That That's what I'm looking for. I'm like, you want to upgrade, but the old one still works. The older model I used to recommend still works. You won't do it. Maybe you eventually decide to and you give it to somebody. I mean, that's the longevity I look for even in a consumer-level product. This is a great product, and I wanted to give you a solution to the one complaint I've heard about it. I had this problem, too, and when I first brought it to you, because I usually use this stuff for a few months before I recommend it, and I did here. But the one complaint is that sometimes when you're, you want to open it to fill it up, and you push the button, it sticks and it doesn't open. And there's a little release in there, and when it first happened to me, I'm like pushing the button and look, and the release comes all the way, but it doesn't seem to make sense. And then I realized that if you push the back of the button, so closest, the button's pretty large, closest to the handle, furthest from the spout, it always opened. And what was happening is you thought you were pushing the center of the button, but if you're pushing a little bit forward, you're actually kind of moving the lid toward the, the, the catch, and it might not, and by the time you let it up, it was coming back out and catching. So simply push the back of the button. So if you've had that problem with this, and I have heard from a few of you, that's the solution. Otherwise, this thing is awesome. And I researched dozens of these because of everything that I told you about in that segment today. I really believe that when you're buying anything, and to me, like an electric kettle, for some of you might be, well, I use that like once a week on Saturday mornings for tea or something. I use this thing three to four times a day. I figured out that the old Hamilton Beach one, mine finally did have a problem. The lid wouldn't stay closed on it anymore. And I had to weight it down. But um, let's see, right here in my thing. We had it for five years, and I used it a minimum four times a day making coffee and tea, etc. That means I ran the thing at least 7,300 cycles, and finally, after all that time, I killed it. And again, I didn't even kill it. The lid just wouldn't stay closed, so it didn't automatically shut itself off. This is a better device. This is pretty amazing. Also, I thought I killed this one recently. It got really wet, and it just didn't work, and I thought it shorted out or something. And a couple days later, I, I put it back, and it just worked. So it has some sort of safety feature in it that if it gets too wet, it will basically turn itself off until it's dry. Pretty cool. Anyway, you can always help support us, not just by buying this Morocco kettle, but anytime you do your online shopping, do it at TSPAS. You know the deal with how I review things, but even if you buy something that's not on there, as long as you start there, you help us with the work that we do. With that, let's talk about our song of the day. Um, I'll warn you that if you're a parent, when you listen to this song, you might feel that somebody started cutting onions around you or something. It's called Send Them On Down the Road by Garth Brooks. It was released in 2014. It's hard for me to remember. That's actually fairly old for music now. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, but it's about all those moments, including kind of that last one where the kids really get, like go out on their own and leave the house. But it's like, you know, it's especially moms, you know, kid goes to kindergarten. Oh, my God, they're growing up so fast. They're, they're, they're going to be home in a couple hours. Um, 
But yeah, when I listened to this song, I, I realized why Garth said of this song, what a beautiful song. He performed it, he didn't write it. He said it was just a beautiful song. It's an anthem for parents. And what it's really about is enjoying every moment of it. And as we, we, we homeschool my grandkids, and I do work most of the day, so I get limited interaction with them, but I get that interaction more than I had with my own son because I worked in a different capacity as he was growing up. I realize what a second gift it is with grandkids. It really is. Those of you who are still on the kids, don't miss a moment. It's magic that you'll never get back. With that, it's been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. He didn't ask. He didn't pry. He just held the ice that covered my black eyes. And when that girl, she broke my heart. We just threw that baseball back and forth till started playing guitar and didn't have a clue he wanted to protect me but somehow my father knew that you can cry for live and die for you can help them find their wings but you can't fly for cause if they're not free then they're not free at all And though you just can't bear the thought of letting go Pick them up You dust them off You send them on down Little kids of need playing soccer riding bikes climbing trees when bad dreams filled their heads I chased the monsters out from underneath their beds yes I always knew those days Hardest thing I've ever learned has been That you can cry for, live and die for You can help them find their wings but you can't fly for Cause if they're not free for, then they're not free at all And though you just can't bear the thought
dust in my You hold close And you pray Down the road. 